get good at, at that first step in the process, which is defining your objective and defining the problems, right? I think that's where if you miss that step, you're going to be spending a lot of effort on things that might not, you know, give you the return on investment that you're looking for. So that requires a level of honesty. It requires a level of... This is a Touchstone Publishers presentation, your trusted source of leadership knowledge. Well, welcome everybody to our podcast, Essential Leadership Skills. Very special guest. Um, some of you have read my bio. You see that uh, this gentleman is named as the mentor of the decade, the century. Um, I want to share with you some information about him, but I think the best way to do this is for you just to meet Cameron and you guys will just chat. So Cameron, my first question to you is going to be, well, by the way, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you. Uh, my first question to you is going to be, what is it about you or your company that most people don't understand or they don't conceive, they don't see it the way that you think they might should? Oh, that's a great question, Glenn. First and foremost, thank you for having me here. and. And thank you for the kind introduction. I think uh, you're very generous there. It's been an honor to work with you in the past and I learned a lot from you as well. I'd say um, in answer to your question, um, the name of our company sparks a lot of curiosity, Kaizen 724. And people ask me about the significance of that name. For those who are not in the process improvement or continuous improvement industry or in the quality um, improvement industry, they might not be familiar with that term Kaizen. Kaizen is a Japanese word and it means continuous improvement. It's actually a well-known term in those fields. Uh, the Japanese have done a lot to forward the idea of process improvement and continuous improvement um, as seen in Toyota's manufacturing and the reputation they've gained over the years for high quality. That's just one example of how they've influenced in a very positive way the entire field of continuous improvement. So I named my company Kaizen and then the 724 stands for seven days a week and 24 hours a day. So that's a nod to the idea of being continuous seven days a week, 24 hours a day. So that's the first place where I think people scratch their head um, if they're not familiar with that term. Um, but that helps me to kind of communicate to the rest of the world what we're all about. We're about continuous improvement. Now, it's easy to pigeonhole people. When you think of continuous improvement, you might think of manufacturing, you might think of customer service or things of that nature. And certainly we do focus on all of that. The other side of it though, is that humans are always involved. And so our business also focuses on personal development and professional development. And the idea of continuous improvement as it applies to the human being, not just to a process or to a machine or an assembly line, but really how do we address the human element? So my catchphrase is generally where methodology and mindset come together, you'll find Kaizen 724. And sometimes I'll say, where psychology meets methodology hmm. is okay. where you find continuous improvement. So I'll get okay. off my soapbox there, but that's, I'd say the, the first area to help people understand that we, we do look at the human element as well as the process side of things. And I am a lean and six Sigma black belt. Um, I got that through various means when I was with United healthcare, they put me through 
Six Sigma and Lean Training, and I acquired the Green Belt through United Healthcare. And they have a very robust program. Uh, when I moved over to Teletech, which is now known as T-Tech, um, they have a very strong uh, continuous improvement department led by Katie Rawson. And we focused on all things to do with continuous improvement in the call center environment. And they put me through Villanova University where I obtained my black belt in Lean and Six Sigma. Okay. You know, I have a couple questions for you, but before I get there, tell us about your book. Well, which one? The one that, uh, if we go to the link right now, they can download a copy of it. Oh, okay. The, the ebook on KPIs. So, you know, I, I was inspired by the idea of, of really helping people who want to get into the field of management. And in the call center world, there's plenty of opportunity for, for people to distinguish themselves as leaders and get into management and then begin to understand what it's like to uh, manage and lead, lead a team. And one of the things that stands out to me is the importance of data and understanding how you can take data or what we call metrics and combine them to come up with what we call key performance indicators. So that book is just designed as a primer to help people who are emerging leaders or even people who are experienced leaders really make sure that they are focusing on the core categories of key performance indicators so that they have essentially a dashboard that's going to guide them in their decision making on where to focus their attention, their energy, how to celebrate their team, how to encourage people to make targeted improvement so that you're not just saying, hey, work harder or you're not doing enough. Okay, okay. Now, here comes my question. Six Sigma, um, I didn't go as far as you went with it, but I would like for you to talk about the method uh, methodology of Six Sigma and how it connects with the human. Okay, excellent. Well, um, it's, you know, most people are very familiar with what we call DMAIC, which is D-M-A-I-C. And I'll just run through that real quick. So the D stands for define. And I think that that's where people really kind of go wrong is that they don't define the issues that they are facing clearly enough in order to come up with an approach that's going to be effective at mitigating the problem. I'll back up for a second and say this, that there is a distinction between lean and Six Sigma. Lean, uh, you know, from a 30,000 foot level is about reducing waste. And Six Sigma is about reducing defects. So let's make sure that people have that distinction as we go into this conversation. So one is about removing waste and the other is about removing defects. So in the Six Sigma world, um, if you think about defining a problem and making sure that you are data driven in the way you define that problem. So when did the problem start? So you would say from January 1st through March you know, 31st, XYZ occurred at this level. So you're defining what happened. You know, how did you miss the target? Now, how do you apply that to a human? Well, that's, that's very simple. We still need to measure. And when it comes to personal improvement or professional development, it's certainly very important to define your objective and what is holding you back from achieving that objective. So we might call that the defect or the problem. If we just say, for example, you know, I want to get better at public speaking. Well, how do you know you're better? What are you basing that on? What does better mean? So that's where you would take the concept of define 
and define what you mean by better. Does it mean that you can speak extemporaneously? Does it mean, does better mean that you get a certain type of feedback from your audience? Does better mean that you get it done on time and that you're better at your time management while you give a talk? So define is important and it applies to the human being. The next step in Six Sigma would be measure. And I have a phrase that if you don't measure something, you're basically saying it doesn't matter. So you have to know what you should be measuring. So for example, if you want to improve your health and you say you want to get part of improving your health might be losing uh, a certain amount of unwanted fat. So you're going to want to measure that. Now it's not always going to be measured in pounds. It could be measured by a body mass indicator. It could be measured by the size of the waist on your pants. However you want to define that, but make sure you do measure the starting, the baseline, so that you can see if you're making progress because the measurements will tell you if you're on track. Are you on a trajectory where you're making the improvements at the pace that you predefined according to the methodology you're using for improvement? Does that make sense? Yeah, so far, great. Yeah, great. so the next step would be to analyze. So you've defined your problem, you've taken your baseline measurements, and now you're analyzing the data that you got from your measurement because the data sometimes will reveal to you where the real problem is. And we wanna be careful of averages here. You know, there's, there's a, I remember reading a, a quote about people drown in an average of three feet of water. Yeah, yeah. And you think to yourself, how could somebody drown in three feet of water? because they could just stand up, right? And, and not be sinking. Yes, yes. But the problem is we said average. So you can average, um, you know, over a certain amount of feet, it could be one foot deep at one end and 25 feet at the other, but it might average out to three feet. Mm -hmm, sure. So uh, be careful about averaging and averaging averages. That's where you really get into trouble is when you take multiple averages and average them together, your data starts to get skewed. So when you're analyzing a problem, the data becomes really important. And, you know, that implies record keeping, that implies taking time to analyze the data and really look at it. And so if we want to take that back to your question of how do you apply this to the human element, I think that's another challenge a lot of people face is slowing down enough to analyze what their real issues are and, and where they may be going wrong. So let's say in, in personal improvement, you've defined your objective and your problem. You've started your baseline measurements. Now you comes to the analyze part. If you don't take the time to analyze where the problem is occurring, when is the problem occurring, and how frequently is the problem occurring, you're not gonna really be able to make the next step, which is improve, right? So again, if it comes to health, and you want to improve your nutrition, you want to improve your exercise routine, your sleep and your water intake, well, you have to pay attention to when am I going to sleep? Analyze that. How often, you know, how much sleep do I get? Um, am I drinking water? Do I drink it at, you know, intervals that are healthy or do I try to, you know, guzzle a gallon in a half an hour? That's not going to do you any good. So you have to analyze your frequencies. You have to analyze your when and where so that you can make sure that you truly understand where the issues are lying, right? The root cause analysis becomes part of that equation. Now, I do wanna mention something. One of the biggest tools used in Six Sigma is called the five whys. 
And I'm so glad you asked about the human element because I feel incredibly strongly about how terrible the five whys are when it comes to human beings. To me, the five whys are about process and machines. So for example, you know, why, it, you, you have a defect on a, a part that's coming through your first machine on the assembly line and it only has a 70% throughput rate, meaning that you put 100, 100 pieces in, only 70 of them come out good enough to go to the next part of the process. So you, you need to do a root cause analysis, find out what's going on with that 30% that there's defects in. So you ask the five whys. So you ask a first why and you get an answer and then you say, well, why, why is that? And you keep asking these five whys till you get to the end of the story and you've found your root cause. So let's say you're a manager and your employees are causing defects and you start asking the five why, well, why did you do that? Well, Glenn, what would your natural reaction be if I ask you, why did you do that? Defensiveness. Exactly. And that's the problem with that technique when it comes to human beings is it elicits a very defensive response. What happens to your ability to be analytical when you're defensive? Yeah, it goes away quickly. Yeah, exactly. Because then you start looking to justify your behavior. Mm -hmm. And all of this is antithetical to improvement, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so when it comes to applying things like root cause analysis to human behavior, why is an inflammatory question? So it's it's important to get good at, at asking questions that still get to the root of the issue, but do so in a way that doesn't elicit that defensive response. Well, give us an example. Let's say we're working in a call center and we have an employee that has been rating low on their calls. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're the ones creating some hangups and things like that. What would you just suggest off the top of your head that a new manager might, or even a seasoned manager might want to approach that? Because they still got to define what the problem is, still got to analyze what the problem is. Mm-hmm. You still yeah. got to ask questions, maybe it's not the why, but what, how would you define that question? So those questions, um, well, for example, first thing that comes to mind, is, let's say you've identified that they're having early hangups. People are just getting frustrated and not wanting to finish the conversation with them. When you get to that part of the conversation, you've analyzed the call yourself as a leader and you, and you have identified that flare point Instead of saying, why did you say that? You could say, what led you to making that decision to go that route, for example? Because that's what you want to find out is you want to find out what their thinking is. So what led you to make that decision? How did you come to the conclusion that that would be the right way to handle that is another way of saying that. Of course, tonality is everything, right? Why tends to get us to a tonality that elicits defensiveness. If you say something like, I'm curious what led you to make that decision, then you're going to not have as quick of a defensive response. Well, that also goes into another part of your work though. Just that I want to come back to um, the Six Sigma work, but I want to ask you about the disc. How important is for people to understand personality types of their teammates or their uh, direct reports in order to frame these type of questions? Do you consider that important or do you think it's just the I question? do. I really do. I think that's, ex- and thank you for bringing that up. So a couple of things. I'm going to dispel 
the disc is not really a personality test as much as it is a, um, a way to measure your human behavior. So I like to use that term. It's more of a measurement of behavioral style measurement. Um, so the DISC stands for those four elements that we all have in the way our behavior tends to show up. And what the DISC assessment can help a, a manager do so effectively is understand the communication style of their subordinates very, very quickly. And then the real magic happens, not just in understanding those styles, but then in your ability as a leader to modify your style of communication so that it aligns you know, to, the, to their style. So for example, those who are high in, in the D area tend to not like to go on and on um, with the things that people who are higher in the uh, I spectrum, which would be more about relating to people, you know, how's your mom, how's your dad, very much more social in their approach to conversation and problem solving than the D's are really more about let's bottom line, okay, give me the bullet points, let's move, move, move. They're, they're much more faster paced and they digest information much more quickly. So a person who's gonna go on and on about relationship building before they get to the meat of the matter will frustrate a person who is, mm -hmm. the, and then that hurts on the listening. So being able to understand the behavioral styles of your team and then also I would add the motivators. That's another big piece is the 12 driving forces. When we start to understand the, the top four motivators on a person, it, you can imagine how powerful that would be as a leader when you really see how a person gets excited about what they do and what gets them out of bed. Now, you're not gonna be able to tailor every environment for that for each of your employees. What you can do is tailor your interaction. You hmm. can knowing what motivates them, knowing their behavioral slash communication style, you as a leader can now effectively work with them, speak their language, and then create an environment, at least in your interaction with them, that is much more motivating to them. Good. So I think that the DISC to me is a really great, and I, I, it's, I hate saying this, but it's a shortcut in a sense because it could take you years to, and lots of analysis to truly understand another person at that level. And at work, you don't have time for that. You just don't have time to know people at that level of intimacy. So the, the uh, DISC and 12 Driving Forces assessments gives you that data super fast. You learn the language of human behavior. You adapt your communication style. You look to uh, provide as much motivating uh, content, not just content in terms of like speech, but environment, interaction style. With your team, you're gonna find that people are really gonna be loyal to you because they their needs are being met. Okay, okay. So let's jump back into, um, so, so far we talked about define, measure, analyze, improve. Let's finish that off real quick before we go on. Sure, the last letter in the DMAIC process is C, which stands for control. So you cap off these improvement efforts with what we call a control plan. And a control plan, it does a couple of things. Number one, it gives you your specification limits that you're going to operate off now uh, that have defined what quality is for you. 
in that instance. So either from a personal perspective or from a production, you know, manufacturing perspective, let's say, you've defined that if the process yields XYZ at this tolerance, then it's in control and it's operating appropriately. It's, it's right. doing what it should do. So let's take it back to the easiest thing I would say is a person's health, if we wanna make it personal. And you have said, okay, my healthy weight is 180 pounds. And if I get to 180, you know, you, you define a range, maybe it's, it's 180 to 190. Well, as soon as you hit or start creeping up towards 190, you can begin to ask, okay, what's happening here? What are we doing differently? Mm -hmm. Or what's happening differently? And then once you cross that 190 barrier and you hit 191, now was the second part of the control plan comes into play. Somebody rings the emergency bell, or if you were on an assembly line, you'd hit that red button and stop the assembly line. And okay. say, all right, something's, something's wrong here. We've gone past our spec limit. And now in the control plan, it goes beyond stopping the assembly line. You know who to contact and they know immediately what to do. That's what the control plan defines is okay. who's involved. We've identified that, A, we're going uh, past our spec limit. This is no longer acceptable. Who do you call? What do you do next? And because you've gone through this whole process improvement exercise, you really already know what some of the typical issues are gonna be. So you can do a real quick analysis, root cause analysis to get this process back in control and within your specification limits. So applying it to your question initially was about how do you apply this to your personal life? Perfect, yeah. Yeah, well, well then- Before you, you personal life, let me switch it. to so mm -hmm. let's apply to a new manager mm -hmm. at a company. Okay, and let's say so they just got promoted maybe at a call center. Now they want to know how to be a better manager. They can mm -hmm. apply this Six Sigma process to it, correct? They can. Um, I, I say that with a little hesitation in my voice. I mean, you could always take a concept and apply it. Um, starting a continuous improvement department and creating a culture of continuous improvement or a Six Sigma culture or a lean culture is an effort in and of itself and it requires you know leadership buy-in and so on and so forth um so as an individual yeah you can you can be, get good at defining issues you can get good at measuring them and being good at analysis when you get data and, and looking at it and really understanding it uh, i think making sure you that the data is clean you know and being able to parse that out is super important then from there you can <clears throat> get good at you know some improvement efforts and create <clears throat> pardon me, your, your own control plan. So yes, you can do that as a new manager. Um, you may be going solo in that. It may become your style. I'll put it that way. Versus creating a, a culture. That's a different effort. Yeah, yeah. I imagine it's a little bit different effort. Quite a bit, not a little bit. Imagine it's pretty large to create a culture like that. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest challenge of creating a culture that way? So creating a culture is, that's a big, big, big topic. Um, that's why I, I think anybody topic. who's worked with me knows that I, I boil it down to three, th pardon okay. me here. I boil it down to three things, thinking, behavior, and communication. And you'll see the, that concept in all my material. 
So culture to me is those three things. It's the predominant thinking. <coughs> Pardon me. I'm going to have to edit that out. <clears throat> what is the predominant thinking? And now, what I mean by that are, are the values, the, <clears throat> the mission, um, the vision, the beliefs, all of those things are the thinking. And you can put whatever you want on a poster. The reality is the thinking will show up in behavior. And that'll be really where you see the, the truth. <clears throat> and then the communication will also give you evidence of what the thinking is. And it's gonna be, you know, it's sort of a loop that goes either direction. If your thinking is flawed, <clears throat> your behavior won't be better than your thinking. It'll be probably a little bit worse. And the quality of your communication will degradate as well. So it all really begins with that thinking, Glenn. And for a new manager to start influencing the thinking of their higher ups is a big order. Can be done. It's not something that happens quickly. It's usually communicated through, you, you usually gain influence in the corporate world through results, right? You, you get you get results, people start paying attention. Yep. Then they'll ask questions like, how are you getting those results? And then you can start to explain your thinking or philosophy. It'll be evident in your behavior. So behavior for me is about routine. So it's not just about one interaction. It's about how you conduct yourself every day. So as a leader, I remember your podcast you listen to, and I know it's familiar to you because of what, um, I was teaching plus it's just common sense but you know those thousands of trainings we did in in leadership back at optum where one of the main things i would teach is if you're a leader greet your people every day and you had that on one of your podcasts the other day and it's it's such an undervalued activity of high value right because you're dignifying people you're creating meaning and this is this is a passionate topic for me because at work, you know, we all want meaning. We, there, and there's three kinds of meaning. You can get meaning from your work just in the sense of a paycheck. It has a practical meaning, okay? I show up because I need money. <clears throat> and, I, and, and it's meaningful to me that way. Then there's the meaning that you get by being at work, which is I'm on a team and they think I'm great or, you know, I fit in. I'm the, I'm the cl clown of the group, but I'm still important because I lift everyone's mood. and. I matter. <clears throat> and so I get meaning from work because I'm part of something bigger than myself. That's the second kind of meaning. And then a third type of meaning would be the work itself. So if I'm in a call center and I'm helping people with their healthcare insurance and I feel like I'm a lifesaver because I get people access to free exams they otherwise wouldn't take advantage of and then I can get cancer pre um, diagnosed before it's too far and people can get treated and I can save lives. That's, you know, I'm not going to let a headache stop me from coming to work because I've got important stuff to do. Right. Right. So mm -hmm. greeting your team every day, you can address a couple of those levels of meaning because when you greet them, you, you let them know they matter and they're part of a team that's bigger than themselves and that they're needed, wanted and appreciated. And then you can also communicate as you greet your people, you can start to influence the culture by talking about what we're gonna to accomplish today in terms of how much good we're gonna do. 
for the world outside. So <clears throat> to me, that, that behavior, that routine of just greeting people every day, the routine of posting results, helping the team see where we're being successful, where we're falling short, what we need to do different, setting what we call compelling expectations. <clears throat> Phrases like, well, the people who are most successful at this career tend to show up three minutes early and are ready to take their first call by the time their schedule starts. That's setting a compelling expectation. So mm -hmm. you do that 20 times a day in, in various forms, <clears throat> you're gonna help people see what the target is without coming out and saying it directly. So does that make sense? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So sorry about my voice. I've got some. Oh, that's stuff okay. In my throat. I think uh, I understand that better than most at this point in my career and things. Alrighty. So um, there's a process to all this, um, not just for call centers, but just the process of applying Six Sigma. But there's also a process of saying good morning to everybody. By the way, I think good, saying good morning builds trust above everything else. Mm -hmm. You're walking around saying good morning to people, you're building trust. And I think when you build trust, you can start having compelling expectations and things like that. But that's just my opinion. It's right. about what you're thinking. Um, communication piece is huge. It's a huge piece. I mean, that in itself is uh, ongoing, constant, and never-ending improvement as far as people have to learn how to communicate. You learn oh, how to for sure. The different um, styles, the DISC program, but then you're throwing in a, something that we kind of talked about briefly, but you're throwing in the idea of, okay, how do I motivate people? Mm -hmm. 12 traits of motivation. So that's 12 traits of motivation. That's what I consider them. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, just give us maybe one example of Here's how someone gets motivated and here's how you need to change your speech to fit that person. Yeah, absolutely. So I'm going to keep it simple. And let's just say that uh, motivation comes in a lot of forms. Uh, fear is a type of motivation, for example. So when we, I, I like to, you know, let's paint the boundaries of what we're talking about here. I don't want to use fear as a leader. Um, I don't think that's ultimately a long-term effective strategy. It can work in the short term, but I think it does more damage than good in the long term. So motivating by fear, you're going to lose your job, you're going to be demoted, or I'm not going to like you. Yeah. <laughs> Any of those types of fear-based motivations, I think, are not um, appropriate stra <clears throat> strategies. So. When it comes to the 12 driving forces, <clears throat> it's understanding what, so for instance, um, when the pandemic hit and masks became very important, I'm, I'm a person to my 12 driving forces profile, says I'm very high on the utility scale. I'm motivated by things that do their job, that, that as advertised. So a mask to me needs to filter. So I'm out looking for masks that do a great job at filtering and I get the best out there and I buy it for my wife <clears throat> and I give it to her and she says, well, this is ugly because she's not motivated by utility. She's motivated by what we call harmony and, and the beauty of something. So she, she would care more about the ambiance in a restaurant than whether or not the food was amazing. 
Whereas I want like really good service and I don't care as much about how nice the restaurant looks. So we're motivated by different things. Neither of us is right, neither of us is wrong. It's just different. Now in a husband and wife scenario, it's important to know those differences so that you don't get annoyed with them or express annoyance because you're judging when you do that. You're making the other person feel bad for you know who they are. So knowing that my wife is motivated by that harmony, I need to go find a mask that can filter, but also is fashionable so that she'll wear it because she's so motivated by that. She won't wear the mask that is amazingly good at filtering if it doesn't meet her aesthetic need. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now there's a mask out there that does both. I just stopped looking when I found the one that filtered. <laughs> you really? know what I mean? Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So, so as a leader, <clears throat> you might, and I'm not saying, you know, I'm not making any implications about husbands and wives here when I talk about leaders. But going back to the work environment, um, as a leader, when you understand those things about somebody, then you can talk to them about what needs to change in a more motivating fashion, because you're not gonna drum on the wrong drum. You're gonna find the drum that they like to beat, mm. and you'll drum on that. So if a person, for example, is motivated by learning, <clears throat> not just for practical reasons, but they just love learning anything, you could approach a conversation about improvement and couch it under the terms of learning. So if I would say, for example, you have a your average handle time is far too high because you have no, no call control <clears throat> and i know you're motivated by just learning for learning's sake i could say i've got a project for you i need you to learn this topic of call control because i'm going to ask you to help present it to the rest of the group at a team huddle mm -hmm. and then you get them excited about something that they need right that's just an example that I'm just That's pulling a out powerful of here. example. Yeah. It leads me to another question. <clears throat> so there's 12 there, and that's a powerful example. But how do we quickly, and this is why, by the way, a lot of companies hire coaches like yourself, but how do we discover people who report to us their personality styles and their uh, the 12 traits? How do we discover that? You, to me, like I mentioned earlier, it's all about taking those assessments because otherwise it would take you years. <clears throat> and you just don't have the time to intimately get to know people at that level. So the assessments, just get it done. Don't waste your time. Get it done so that you can really understand that and, and become a student of human behavior. Become a student of human behavior. That's interesting. Okay. Um, when you sit down to work with a company and you're going through this with them, it's culture. How do you, as a consultant, as a leader, start bringing that consultant, that culture in place as a consultant? What's the best way for you to teach another call center or help them gain, gain the, the culture that they need? That's a really good question. Uh, <clears throat> I think we need to be careful as consultants to not come in thinking we have all the answers and that people need to think like we think. <clears throat> Pardon me. We need to come in and serve. So I think it's, it all begins in the in initial needs analysis interview before you even have a contract. 
is that conversation and trying to divine through that conversation what their culture is and what they want from their culture. What they want from their culture may be very different than your personal approach and philosophy as a consultant. And it's not your job to run around and create mini me's as it were. <clears throat> now you may think that as a consultant, and you may often be right, that there is a better way of doing things. Um, so I just think in the beginning, you want to understand what they want to accomplish and you want to support their initiatives. If, if there's, if you've been brought in to fix culture, that's a different story. Is that, <clears throat> is that what you're asking about? Well, yeah, but I guess you kind of divided it off into two different areas that as a consultant, if you're coaching other consultants that work with you, you're telling them, okay, listen, listen, number one, listen and find out what the customer is after. They're mm -hmm. asking you to change the culture. That's your job and you change it. But otherwise you need to listen to them and track along with what they want to do or understand what they want first. Right. Exactly. So, yeah. So if, if we are going to, if we're there to improve, help improve culture, um, surveying the employees is going to be absolutely key. Uh, doing a lot of observation. So in Six Sigma, we call it a Gemba walk. You go out onto the production floor and you actually watch them make the sausage and you see what's happening and you interview people and you find out what is it about their job that's challenging? What would they change if they had the power? How do they feel about the way things are done? Again, looking at thinking, behavior and communication. You ask a lot of questions around how change is communicated to the frontline staff. Do they understand it? Do they get the reasons behind the change? Are they able to leverage the change in a positive way so that they feel like they're doing their job better? Um, is communication bi-directional or is it unidirectional, meaning top-down only, or does it flow both directions? Is communication a strategy for, you know, number one, a lot of companies don't even view communication as an integral part of their strategy. Yeah. yeah. You, know, you know, having regular communication with your staff and does the staff have a way to communicate back up the, the chain of command? in a safe and, and um, open way. So <clears throat> changing the culture, um, some people say you can't change the culture. It, it is what it is. Um, I don't have that fatalistic view. I think that you get enough people to define the culture they want and then point out the areas where it's different from what they want and then talk about, you know, it's just applying the Six Sigma process to it, really, and, and the psychology around it. Because another thing about culture, you know, if improving culture implies change, and which gets us into change management. Hmm. One of the important things to think about anytime a change is being made is ask, stop, 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 and, and just ask, what are the unintended consequences of these changes? And if you don't address that, I mean, sometimes you'll get five or six really important data points right out of the gate. So for example, you have a data breach and so we've got to go paperless. We're going to go paperless overnight. We don't want anybody writing down social security numbers and credit card numbers. We're going to go paperless overnight and we're going to make that change now. And then the next day that you show up and your family pictures are gone because they were on paper your awards that you had worked hard for that you got, they were on paper certificates pinned to your cube. Those are gone. You walk in and you're like in this sterile little cube. All you got is a monitor, a keyboard and a mouse. And you're like, what happened? 
like no, we're getting fired? Are we moving out? Yeah, like you're describing somebody we know, a company we know both very well. Yeah, exactly. We went we went through this, right? No yeah. job aids are there now. You used to have yeah. all those awesome job aids you made, and now you're stuck, and nobody even told you it was going to happen or why or any of that, and the backlash is horrible. So if you stop and say, okay, going paperless and unintended consequences, we'd lose job aids. How are we going to deal with that? All right, well, before we go paperless, we're going to have to create an electronic set of job aids or make sure people have access to a knowledge base, right? How are we going to handle awards? We're going to have to come up with a virtual award program that's still very, very public. Everybody can see the award just like they can see it if they walk by your cubicle or they could see it on the team board. You know, you ask those questions. What are the unintended consequences of these changes? And, you know, like and one question I like to direct companies to ask is who, who would be threatened by this change? Who would feel like their mm -hmm. legacy is being erased? Who would feel that their role in the company is at jeopardy? Uh, who would feel that the the legacy of their reputation is going to be squashed? You know, like when you hear about AI, for example, oh, that's going to take my job. Okay, well, is it? Or do you have the opportunity to get a new job? Or is it going to make you better at your job? Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because it's going to take care of all the low-hanging fruit that wastes your time so that you can get to the meat of the matter and do what only a human can do. Right, right, right. right. So again you know the culture being a thinking behavior and communication i keep going back to that is is really where you want to spend your time uh, when it comes to the culture you know what i want to ask you about also though when it comes to the culture when it comes to a consultant walking in see if you agree with just this premise as a consultant as a coach walking in there's a certain amount of time that you should just be quiet Absolutely. If That's where that observation comes yeah. in. If you're observing the, the factory line and you're walking to see how each person does their job, mm -hmm. required. I mean, and I think that's important in you building your culture as a consultant. So I just throw that out there out, out of the difference because I learned that from you, I believe. That's a very valid point is just sitting back and, and letting people do what they do and just watching it and then coming up with the right questions for later. And that, right. that quiet observation ena enables you to, uh, can I tell a quick story? Sure. All right. So I love this story because it's, I call it the dead boss theory. And I learned that from a book, which everybody who's interested in process improvement should read. It's called The Goal by Elihu Goldratt. <clears throat> um, but I, I saw this in a personal way. So my uncle, when he was a young man, he was single. He was at a friend's house um, who was married and they were gonna cook a roast. And, he, and he's a single man, but he loves cooking, so he wants to learn. So he, he asks, can I go in the kitchen with you? He asked the lady of the house, and can you teach me what you're doing to make this roast? And she said, sure, come on in. So she goes, well, here's the first thing we do. We take the roast and you cut off about an inch and a half of this end. You just cut that off. And my uncle's a very curious and extremely intelligent person. And he says to her, well, why do you do that? And she looked at him and said, you know, I don't know. It's just the way my mom always did it. Mm. But now you got me wondering. So she called up her mom. 
and she said, Mom, you know how you have me cut that inch of, of the roast off? And she goes, yeah. She goes, why do we do that? Why did you teach me to do that? She says, honey, that because it wouldn't fit in the pan I had. <laughs> For years, this woman had been doing what her mom did and throwing away an inch and a half of roast. Right, right, right. Just cutting it off, doing what she was told without asking and throwing it off. <clears throat> so as a consultant, I call it the dead boss theory because what happens is you go in and you do that quiet observation and now you've got some intelligent questions and you'll come up and say, so what is the reasoning behind doing it this way? And I said, well, I don't know. Bob told me to do it that way. Okay, can I talk to Bob? Well, Bob's dead. He, he died 10 years ago. Well, when Bob instructed the team to do it that way 10 years ago, it probably fit the competitive environment. It probably made sense given the machinery they had or the yeah. amount of personnel doing the work. It may have made sense from a compliance perspective back then, you know, following the law. Uh, but does it make sense today? Are we just following a tradition of a boss who passed away? And that's where that quiet observation can help you get to asking really good questions. And, and it, it's, it's amazing the results you get. And people will look at you like you're some kind of wizard. It's funny. Uh, they'll be like, how did you identify that issue so quickly? And that was the thing that, that really <laughs> propelled the company forward when you identified the, the dead boss theory aspects of what they're doing, right? But you only get that by quiet observation first. Does quiet observation also help you uh, start to see those problems you didn't think of? Like, you know, for example, we go paperless, we've got to take everybody's family pictures down. If someone was, if they observed that beforehand, how likely is it that they're going to see that? Because some of those things you don't get to observe beforehand. You don't get to see the results of your actions until they've been taken. You, yeah, that's true. So I think this goes to another issue that I think corporate America suffers from is that they don't, by and large, I'm making a generalization here. I'll admit that up front. Um, it appears to me that they don't value thinking as an activity. So, you know, in corporate America, it's go, 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 move, 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 do, 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 do. Yeah. And, and so action, physical motion, meetings, those are all valued as, man, you're, you're moving, you're doing something. But thinking, just thinking, that is an activity. It just doesn't have the visual bluster and, and, and it's not as impressive visually, but it is, it's an action and it needs to be valued as an action. And that's the problem. So no, you can't observe some things ahead of time, but what you can do is stop and project yourself into the future and say, what if we did this? What would happen? I mean, that's how Einstein came up with the theory of relativity. He just sat and imagined he was riding a beam of light like a spaceship. Yeah. And he asked, what would I see? If I was going the speed of light, what would I see? How would objects appear to me? As I approach them, what would they appear as they went behind me? Uh, what would happen? You know, just thinking is an action. Thinking is activity. And if we can value that. Obviously, I'm not saying everybody needs to be daydreaming all day long, but you need to bake in time for yourself to think and for your team to think. Right, right, absolutely, absolutely. To be respectful of your time, I want you to tell us real quick, how can people get a hold of you 
your writings, everything. Just give us a quick idea of how people can get a hold of you. Okay, well, simply put, you can go to our website, www.kaizen724.com. There is an About Us page where we have all of our contact information. We have a link to my calendar. So if you want to book a session to do a discovery session with me, you can do that on there. Um, info at Kaizen724 is a good email address to put inquiries. Those will make their way to me okay. as well. Also, give us the proper spelling of Kaizen real quick. It is K-A-I-Z-E-N. I just realized I know how to spell it because we've been in communication, <laughs> but I'm thinking Kaizen, some people might be spelling it. Yeah, that's true. That's a good use. So K-A-I-Z-E-N724.com. Okay, perfect, perfect. And tell us about your writings. I've done uh, extensive writing on uh, leadership models for larger companies. They, the model also applies to smaller companies. I, I wrote a mini book for a seminar that I did called Management Principles That Lead to Success. Um, so the first time I conducted that seminar, I had a, a roofing contractor commercial roofing contractor, a dentist's office, the Lee County School District sent their maintenance department. Um, I had a property management company and a few others. So just to give you an idea of the diversity of the audience that that, that material applied to, right? Management principles that lead to success. Um, the leadership models that I've written, um, they're about 150 pages. They include a lot of the forms that you would use or suggested types of forms you would use. Um, I wrote a customer service model. That one's about 150 pages of how frontline workers can interact effectively with customers to create wow. a great experience. Um, in addition to that, I, I dabble in a little bit of non, in fiction, if you will, but um, I've never published any of those. Never, those have never seen really the light of day. Uh, only the materials that I've written around business have ever been used as uh, a basis for training and circulation within a company. But these aren't books that you're gonna find on the shelf at Barnes and Noble or on Amazon just yet. They're coming. Okay. <laughs> um, if you had to say, hey, Glenn, no, I wish you would have asked me this question. What would that be? Well, we didn't talk about neuro-linguistic programming. Okay. So to me, that's a huge part. So as I mentioned at the outset, we talked about what's different about my company in that it's not just using Lean and Six Sigma, it's also using psychology. So neuro-linguistic programming is shorthand for uh, how language affects behavior and the psychology around that. and and how the greatest therapists of all time were really good at observing their clients and getting results by challenging the thinking of the clients and the way they use their language primarily. And the, and the real premise behind this is that <clears throat> you really can't have a thought without language. All thought is rooted in, we yeah. always use some form of language to describe how we're thinking or feeling. And therefore, um, if you listen closely to a person's choice of language, 
their terms, you know, I think some of us are familiar with the concept of visual, auditory, and kinesthetic as an example. So a person who uses what we call their, <clears throat> their primary sensory index is visual, you're going to hear a lot of visual uh, type words in their language. They're going to say things like, that's a bright idea, because bright is a visual type of term versus something doesn't smell right another person might say that that's how they feel like they're sensing something's wrong in a situation let's say something doesn't smell right here they're more motivated by the olfactory you know and then they're going to maybe use that kind of language or we might lump that in with the kinesthetic um, part of it um, somebody who's auditorially uh, that sounds great glenn yeah. you know, sound is an auditory type word you can start to pick up on these patterns <clears throat> We all use all five senses, right? In our decision-making. Where this yeah. becomes interesting is when you when you sense a person's pattern, what happens is you start to see a pattern to their decision-making. They may need to see something first, hear it explained second, and then experience it third physically. So it may be, see, show me how it's done, then explain the process to me, and then let me do it. And that might be how I approach learning. Versus somebody who's like, just give me, give me the tools. Let me just learn by doing. Yeah, yeah. And then you can explain where I went wrong. And then you can show me a better way. That's the exact opposite of what I just described. And there are people out there who are that are wired that way. <clears throat> so it's important if, if you get good at observing these things and, and paying attention to it, again, it comes back to changing your communication style to fit theirs, to create that alignment, what you end up doing when you do that is, is creating a really deep sense of rapport. And Ooh. with rapport, you can influence. And so, you know, there's a dark side to this too, right? You know, right. because yeah, yeah. influence is a fancy way of saying manipulation. I hope not, but yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if you want to be brutal about it, it, it could be, right? Influence could be a form of manipulation. So um, as with any art and science you know you have to have some sort of a value system that says you know first do no harm yeah right um so neurolinguistics so you know people what people need to know about that is it's a powerful form of psychology that can enable people to get past blockages very very rapidly it's a powerful tool for any consultant or coach or leader or mentor because it'll make you more observant and if you're more observant and you're a better listener you're going to be able to really truly see where issues are. Yeah. And those who are better at listening tend to be more fun to be with anyway. Right. And you tend to be more influential, the better listener you are. Here's what's interesting about the NLP work, actually all this work, but especially NLP work, professional and personal. Mm -hmm. Your personal life can be so much better. Your relationships can be so much better. If you start paying attention to the way that person is communicating visually, auditory or kinesthetically, Depending on the time of day, maybe, you know, maybe right. in the time, they just automatically just go to visual because that's how they really store themselves. It's just seeing things and being involved. So that's just that right there. Okay. Um, my last question for you, what's the most important thing that we talked about today? I mean, what's the thing you say, Hey guys, no matter everything else, just remember this, these are the things that you should walk out of here with. Wow. That's a great question. <clears throat> There's a, a, well, let's make it simple. I would say um, get good at, at that first step in the process, which is defining 
your objective and defining the problems, right? I think that's where if you miss that step, you're going to be spending a lot of effort on things that might not, you know, give you the return on investment that you're looking for. So that requires a level of honesty. It requires a level of uh, vulnerability to admit there's issues. And then, to, and then to go that step further, really dive into um, scientifically defining it. And, and it's, you know, instead of saying, well, I'm a little bit heavy. No, <laughs> you're, you're 25 pounds over what doctors say is healthy for your, your height. You know, that's very different than, oh, well, I'm a little bit heavy. Yeah, right? yeah. Carries a very different, yeah, exactly. I can attack 25 pounds. It's hard to attack a little. Yes. Right. So I'd say the most important thing today would be get good at defining your problem and defining your objective very clearly. The more crystal clear you can do both of those things, the better chance you stand of having an impact with continuous improvement. Perfect. Perfect. As usual, uh, Joy, I appreciate you taking the time. I know you're busy. You. I got things to do, but I greatly appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us today. Thank you, Glenn. It was an honor. I love, I love these conversations and thank you for giving me the opportunity. Yeah, I'm sure everybody listening is going to say thank you to you as well. All right, Cameron, enjoy the rest of your day. All right, you too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Second. Thank you for watching this presentation from Touchstone Publishers. Please subscribe and ring the bell to be notified when new episodes are published.